And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Episode 119 of the Keith Law Show. It will be joined today by one of my favorite authors, Elizabeth McCracken, whose new book, The Hero of This Book, came out, uh, I believe, in the middle to late of last year. And I reviewed it on my personal site, The Dish, meadowparty.com slash blog, a couple of weeks ago, and absolutely loved it. And also really loved her previous novel, Bolo A, which was my favorite novel of 2018. Uh, before that, I will... Uh, be, uh, I've been a little bit light on writing lately, uh, mostly because I have not been able to get to uh, as many games as I was hoping to get to. I did have a draft blog post last week, however, where I recapped the top two high school prospects in Virginia this year, Bryce Eldridge, Johnny Farmelo, as well as some of the high school players I saw in California the previous week. I will have another draft blog post up early next week. As well as I'm working on a an updated draft prospect ranking, just going out to 50 names. I'll expand that to 100 probably about three weeks from now, give or take. Um, I've probably got about 70 to 80 names I feel good about, but would rather take more time so that the 100, when I do publish it, is just of better overall quality. I will say it's a very good draft class overall. I'm uh, really very in, very much enjoying covering and writing about this draft so far. When the college class is good, it does make a huge difference to the overall quality of the draft and, frankly, to my particular excitement over covering the draft. I did do a Q&A with Nick Groke, who is normally our Rockies writer because we do not have a beat writer for the Brewers, at least not currently. Um, he and I collaborated to do a Q&A on some of their top prospects, which uh, unfortunately we finished in between the time that we finished doing it and actually ran. Garrett Mitchell suffered what might be a season-ending entry. I hope not. But those of you who do subscribe to The Athletic can read that Q&A as well. And for those of you who follow me for board game content, I did have one review up, I believe, since the last pod went live, which was the review of the long but very good roll-and-write game Twilight Inscription, which takes the game Twilight Imperium, which according to its official listing on Board Game Geek can take four to eight hours to play. So needless to say, I've never tried that. Uh, Twilight in it takes that game and turns it into a roll-and-write, which can be played in under two hours, and I can vouch for that. Twilight Inscription can be played in under two hours. I think if you really know what you're doing, you probably do it in about 90 minutes. Uh, and it is very good. It's still pretty intense as a board game, as a roll-and-write game, but I also do really like it. 
My guest today is author Elizabeth McCracken, who wrote the 2022 novel, The Hero of This Book, which those of you who uh, follow my personal blog, I reviewed over there about two weeks or so ago. It's uh, probably my favorite novel from the 2022 batch that I've read so far. Um, McCracken is also the uh, author of Bowl Away, which was absolutely my favorite novel of 2018, the first of her works that I had read. Uh, but here we're primarily going to talk about The Hero of This Book. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, I'm so delighted. And I'm very happy to talk about Bowl Away, too, because there's probably more we, to talk about Candlepin Bowling than my personal mother. So that's well, it, I spent a very large portion of my life in New England, too, from college and then about 15 years afterwards. Uh, so I actually know what Candlepin Bowling is. I did not until I got to college and I had a roommate who was from the Boston area. Also, I went to college just outside of Boston and he mentioned it at some point. It was like, I don't understand. What are you talking about? Why is this on television? They televised this? And he was trying to explain, no, this is a thing we do. In New England, he didn't really. But that this is a thing that people in New England do is they watch candlepin bowling on television on Sunday morning. I don't know if that's still a thing, but that boggled my mind that people would actually sit and watch this. I have no problem participating in it. We, we all play, everybody plays silly sports for fun or whatever. But the idea of sitting and watching that on television... I did not understand. Actually, still don't, clearly, do not understand the appeal of that at all. It made for a great topic in the book, though. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, I don't think that they do watch it on television anymore, but it's a game with a certain amount of suspense, you know? Mm -hmm. it takes a while for the ball to go all the way down the alley, longer than intended. <laughs> um, so let's at least start with with the, your most, most recent work. So one thing, even just writing a little bit about it, I struggled a little bit with categorizing it. And you take some pains within the book, with it through your narrator character, more to say what the book is not. You say it's not a memoir, it's not a novel, it's not autofiction, the last of which is the term that I, as just a person who really likes to put things in buckets, thought probably applied best. If you hadn't said not to, I would have said, well, this is just a work of autofiction, obviously. So I was curious why you had the narrator character push back so explicitly against attempts to categorize the book, or even if it was just attempts to put it into some of those specific buckets? You know, I think that I wanted her to talk about it because I didn't want the reader to spend time thinking that it was deliberately not categorizing itself. That um, if a reader felt like they were reading this book and, they're, and they were caught going, oh, I can't quite tell whether this is a memoir or a novel, that they would waste a lot of time and energy that I wanted them to to use paying attention to the to the sentences and what was happening. And if I actually said, listen, you're not going to figure it out, that that would dispense with some of that um, tentativeness that I think I was worried about uh, in a reader, because I feel like tentativeness in a reader is is never good. I, I'm trying to remember whether I whether she she you'll hear me make this slip a lot. I she. <laughs> um, says it's not autofiction. She says she doesn't know what autofiction is. She might say that it's not autofiction, but she says she's got no idea what it is. Um, and I indeed don't exactly. But pro this book is probably autofiction. I'm trying to remember the name of the movie from a couple of years ago. Was it called nonfiction? It had Juliette Binoche. Might have been a French language movie. And that comes up a lot. Because I can hear it in my head, autofiction. 
And I think it was the first time I'd heard the term, or maybe the first time I'd heard it used extensively, and ended up, as one does, down a rabbit hole online trying to figure out what this is, and here's some examples, and I've read some of those, and trying to understand. And I was like, I like this word. This word could work. This word sort of fits into one of the spaces in between categories. There's sort of that interstitial right there where I don't really know exactly what to call this. And I mean, I do think that's true of, of the hero of this book where you say it's not explicitly a memoir, um, in, but it sort of is. And I was curious, too, because you, you, you within the book and, and, and some of the re other reviews I've read, too, people make note of you promised your mother you would never just make her a character in the book. But she's, I assume that is sort of your mother within this book. This is enough of your mother, at least, that you've sort of made her character, which to me makes it, how about memoir adjacent rather than calling it a memoir? It's definitely memoir adjacent. I sometimes say that it's a novel about writing a memoir about my mother. And it is, it's my mother in the book. I mean, there's, she's, you couldn't confuse my actual mother with anybody else. And it's fictional in that it's a, only a piece of her. You know, I didn't try to write anything comprehensive about either her life or mine. But I, and there are things that are made up in the book. There are characters that don't exist in real life. But anything that's in the book about the mother is my mother. And part of that is, is that if I tried to fictionalize her, all I would do is make her less interesting. And I, and I did try, when I was first writing the book, uh, I'd forgotten this, but I looked at some notes and I I saw that I had actually started it with somebody who was not my mother. But it wasn't, like there was no emotional charge to it. And I and I wrote the book because so I was really missing my mother a year after her death. Your mother seems like she was a really fascinating person. I think I wrote, I would have loved to meet this person. She just seems incredibly interesting. And even though you were, I, I understood too, the, the book is not that long and you're really giving us a sliver. I mean, how much can a book really ever capture a person? A person is ultimately so three-dimensional and so complex. That I don't care if it's a thousand pages. Actually, I care. I think a thousand pages might do a worse job at that point because you are just, yeah, right. I always picture, you know, it's, if you're looking at a, a you know, a cube or something, right. You're never going to see all six sides at the same time. It's just not possible. Um, but I, I did, um, it, I did come away feeling like this is a person. It was almost like you. she lived several lives. I know it's not a great expression, but there was just so much to her. And on top of that, when there apparently wasn't very much to her, because I don't know if this was true of your actual mother, but you described the mother in the character in the book as being pretty, as we say in this house, fun-sized. We don't use short. But I'm 5'6", I'm the tallest person in the house, and I kept picturing my own grandmother, who died um, nine years ago, uh, was 4'8", maybe? So I come from fun size stock, and apparently you do too. I do. I, well, uh, I, I'm, I have a, a mixed heritage in the height department, ah. in that my father was 6'3", but my mother was under Ooh. five feet tall. I'm about five foot tall. Um, mm. My husband is 5'5", five, five, maybe. Um, one of our kids is is who's going to be sixteen next week, is mm -hmm. on track to being a tall person. I think he's about Great. five ten now, yeah. so it's amazing to us. That's um, a win. Yeah. Yes, 
Uh, but she, but my mother was quite short and it was um, a source of like pride and delight for her. She talked about being short. She liked to quote um, Alice in Wonderland's Caterpillars who says uh, something like three inches is a very fine height indeed when Alice observes <laughs> he's very small. Um, yeah, it, it, there's a line in the book that says that she loved whatever made her statistically unusual and height was part of that. And your narrator character even says, I believe it was the narrator saying this too, that you don't like ordinary people and haven't met anybody who's truly ordinary. Like it was this idea of seeing the extraordinary in just about everyone, which I love. And it is, I would say it is rather than it is my actual lived value, it is one to which I aspire, right? It's very easy to go through the world and, and think a lot of people are ordinary. I've met this person before. I've met, I know this archetype. In my more cynical moments, you know, I sort of say, hey, there's, only, there's only a few people in the world, right? We just keep meeting copies of them. That's really not true. And this book to me seemed very much like a celebration of your mother's extraordinary nature. But I think the narrator too, that comes across as well. And that your narrator is also crediting, so the narrator is the person she is because her mother was the person she was. Yeah, I think that's true. And the narrator is a little less me, although pretty close to me, but a little less me mm -hmm. than the mother is my own actual mother. You changed a lot of biographical details about the narrator, too. Was that just to create distance? I mean, I've never never reading anything like this, too. I don't know what that sort of mental process is. It was to create some distance so the narrator wasn't too much you or were some of those details to really just create the narrator as as her own distinct character within the book, especially since it sounds like your mother, the mother character was so true to your actual mother. You know, Anna, so that I'm married and have kids and I'm not an only child. I have a brother. The narrator is unmarried, has no children um, and is an only child. And I did that for a couple of reasons, one of which was I just wanted to protect anybody who was alive. Um, I didn't want to even glancingly write about my family and my brother. Um, and I didn't, I also didn't want to cut them out of anything or say they weren't there, or I just wanted the book really to be about the narrator and, and her mother. And that was a way to allow me to do that. And, and also because I wanted the book to, to sort of insist that the narrator is not that interesting and that the mother is the one who's interesting. Partly because I knew that my own personal mother would very much like that as a theory for a book, that she is the most interesting and highly detailed person in a book. But it did also allow me not to worry about, it, it freed me from the truth on that thread, that I didn't have to worry about being accurate or getting people who would read the book in the book incorrectly, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, one other thing I, I thought was interesting and that did distinguish the hero of this book from the typical memoir is, I mean, I, I completely understand now that you say too, it's about the process of writing a memoir, but you also use this interesting framing device where the narrator herself is on a trip um, and she's walking around London, which also particularly clicked for me because I went with my family to uh, London last August. And 
so I could picture too, I had a little bit of an advantage too. And you mentioned the Tate Modern. So, oh, I remember when we walked right past that, right? I can picture many of those spots too. And um, I was curious what led you to use that as a as a framing device, sort of why London specifically? I don't know if you have a particular affinity for the city. I could see why, certainly. But how did you settle upon that as a way to frame sort of this figurative walk through your memories with this actual literal walk across the banks of the Thames? Well, Keith, when I was <laughs> writing this book, I was in London and walking ah. around a lot. <laughs> um, and it seemed like... It seemed it seemed like a, a good frame to hang the book on, partially because I was thinking a lot about my mother, and partly because if you're trying to write something about somebody you've known your entire life, it, it felt like I needed some kind of narrowing device to, to so that I knew what to choose to to write about. And so the the walk was really was quite useful, and it was literally true that I was walking. I didn't spend one day because the walk in the book is a mammoth walk, um, so it sort of stitched together from a few walks I did. But I had been there in 2016 with my mother, and we'd been in some of the same neighborhoods. And in fact, there's a moment where the narrator turns the corner and sees St. Paul's Cathedral and realizes that the hotel that she had stayed with her mother is just to her left, and that happened to me that I I hadn't known where I was in London and all of a sudden I did and it was a neighborhood where I'd been with my mother and I do I think memory works that way um that it's 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 often organized by just daily things um and that that get tripped by things that you see and especially if you're by yourself um you can spend a lot of time walking figuratively around memories while you're literally walking around a city it reminded me in a i guess an indirect way of the the idea of the memory palace where you're trying to remember right okay, so I, I guess i'll explain for listeners who don't know this idea if you're trying to memorize some list of facts um you create a palace or a, a house of some sort of building in your memory and then put the facts one into a room and then I, I have actually never successfully deployed this for the record i am better at just rote memorization than trying to do the memory palace maybe i was too old when i first learned the technique or something like that but i it it came across that way to me I, you're walking which also i greatly appreciate because when i'm upset depressed whatever anxious walking is great absolutely like i remind myself go for a walk absolutely just go for a walk it it helps so i could Immediately, you sort of had me. You sold me right from the get-go. And then you're walking around and you're, 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 I keep doing this, you, your narrators walking around, you get to a certain place, it triggers a particular memory. And you're right, memory does work that way. And it, it, it did anchor the book in a very different way than either real memoirs, I've read real memoirs, I've read a lot of fictional memoirs also. And I think that really helped distinguish it and make it feel very different. And also for me, again, just as, as one reader, it kept it moving in a more interesting way because it was, I guess, a bit nonlinear. I don't know how much the memories were chronological now that I think about it, but certainly the fact that we were sort of moving back and forth through time. And I'm, I'm curious if this was the intent or if this was just sort of how the story told itself, but it did keep 
the velocity of the of the book as a reader uh, up quite a bit. I mean, I think I read this book in something like 36 hours because it was just moving so well. And I, honestly, I didn't want to leave. I was constantly, whether you were in London or whether you were with your mother, I, was like, I like this. I'm, I'm enjoying my time with these people. I would like to stay with them longer. Oh, thanks. That means a lot to me. Um, yeah, I think because the walk is chronological. The narrator starts in the morning and ends when she gets back to um, her hotel at the at the end of the night. But the stuff in the background is not chronological. And in fact, some of it is even sort of out of time. Like there's a, a section on the mother's hair and another one on her feet. Um, so that it was it was quite it was quite handy to have something in which I said, OK, this is the, the present time plot line. It's just absolutely this block of time. One day when she's walking around, she goes to two museums Rides on the London Eye, the giant Ferris wheel, does a couple of other, does the theater at night. Um, and that that does give, I guess, a place for readers to step when they're stepping out of the past. So they just know where they are when they return to the, the London time frame. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. I would be remiss if I did not mention, too, St. Paul's is my wife's favorite place in London as well. And we stayed, I sort of surprised her with the, um, on the trip, we stayed at a little boutique hotel that you could step out the door and St. Paul's was right there. Um, also, so was a McDonald's, so... Right. You win some, you lose some. But it was another one in particular when your character, your narrator stops there and mentions a hotel. Obviously, it doesn't have to be the same hotel, but I had the picture too. It just particularly clicked for me. I was like, oh yeah, I've stood there. I can picture exactly what she's talking about, which leads me into sort of the, a, a general question that applies to this, but also applies a lot to Bolaway as well, which is you really create great characters. There was the thing I, I went back and reread what I wrote about Bolaway four years ago. And I said, the plot of that book 
almost seemed beside the point. It was just we're spending time with these really great, real, realistic, but very interesting characters. It's true of the two characters in this book. And I feel like you, the, a lot of the places you cite have that. They're not characters necessarily, but they have that richness of texture that you apply to so many of your characters. And as somebody who's never published any fiction and would love in my mind, I'm a, you know, I'll have another career as a successful novelist. It's probably not happening, but I would like to think I could do that. But that I would love to know about that process of developing characters. And you do talk about it in the hero of this book too, where you, you give, you give quite a bit of writing advice, but there's the one about describing what the characters really look like is so key to helping the reader understand the entirety of the character. And I'm curious, I mean, you could expand on that advice too, but just how do these characters come about? It is, it is a feat of creativity that will, I, I will never not be impressed by somebody who can do this and do it consistently as you do. Oh, thank you. I think it's not describing characters physically that I think that it's, is important, but knowing the characters physically, that you don't necessarily have to describe what anybody looks like if you don't know what they're like physically they're not going to exist on the page um so yeah I, th I think you really need to think about how they obey the laws of gravity if you have a hard time having characters talking to each other it's often because you're only in their heads um and it just makes a difference what kind of body you have when you walk around so that was really my, the the thing I feel most strongly about with character. And that if I have a character that I can't get a handle on, it's often because I, I haven't imagined what it feels like to be in their body. Just what, you know, what it may, feels like to sit in their chair or, you know, how they feel when they walk down the street. Um, and other than that, you know, it feels like, it does feel slightly magical to me creating characters it's one of my favorite things to do it feels i've i can't create a character well unless i have a sense that i'm creating them from the inside out and not sort of raining down details about them um but i love sort of i don't know making up imaginary people and then invading their privacy it seems like you believe um uh, and this particularly applies to your mother in the in the more recent book that identity is such a i mean it is a broad philosophical topic too but even just within the world of literature trying to describe a character too their physical being no matter what you believe your physical being determines so much of who you are i'm not the person i am if i were not relatively short for a man and relatively slight right it's just determined a lot of my life they just sort of factors in childhood, how you move and exist within the world and interact with the world. I just will always believe that is a huge part of, uh, it creates a lot of who you are. And in your mother's case, because I, I don't know if your mother actually had some of the mobility issues that the character does in the book, but it does seem like that did determine a fair bit of her personality and in, in probably ways I, I, Feel free to correct me, but in ways that were both sort of for the positive and for the negative, which is how I would describe my own experiences just being like, I, I, I talk about it a lot too. People try to make fun of me. They're like, well, you're short. Yeah, no kidding. I've been short for a long time. Like I, I got, the, I, I have accepted this of my life, but I also recognize, 
yeah, there are good things and bad things in my personality that probably just came from being the smallest boy in the class, just about everywhere I ever was in childhood. So I, I am curious. I mean, feel, I, obviously, I, I think I asked you two or three questions within there, but y- your general thoughts on um, this interaction between sort of how we are physically and what that does to the development of our personality, how you, how you bring that through with your characters. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely believe that. And I was always the shortest kid in the class. And it's not that it's our heights that determine our personalities. It's sort of everything else and and what we decide to do with it. Like, you know, I was always in the middle of the back seat and over the hump. If there was ever, you know, I was always, we used to have to line up by height in elementary school. Um, and so I was always at the front of the line. <laughs> I know it's a it's a terrible thing to do uh, to children. I was always on the front of, front center of the risers in any school picture. Um, and that, you know, it it made me me sometimes probably made me feel self conscious. I think it's different for girls than for boys. But also, it you know, I was front and center in those pictures, and that has an effect. Um, sometimes people would under you know underestimate people based on their physicality and then when you counter that that becomes part of your your um character um you know my mother had cerebral palsy and walked with canes for much of her life always had an awkward gait and i think simultaneously that disability had nothing to do with her who she was and everything to do with who she was um and that she loved to defy people's expectations and that if you've got a visible disability you are always aware of people's expectations of you um and she was as she would say unbelievably stubborn um and it's not that i think that um that your physical self is destiny but how people react to you in the world is going to form your character and i think that's true for I think that's true for people as well as for for fictional characters. It makes how people view you and how you react to that is a huge part of your character. I love that point about people underestimating you. I certainly have experienced that myself. And I think so much of it comes from being at the extremes that the, you describing were asked to line up by height or every school picture I had from elementary school I'm always in the front, usually in the front corner. Um, and even to this day, if there's any kind of group picture uh, of adults, at least, I will generally sort of move towards the front because I'm just used to it, I'm not blocking anybody. I go to games, I scout players, and um, I still ask to be courteous, but I generally know other scouts, many of whom used to play professional baseball, do not mind if I go stand in front of them because they can see right over my head. Like... You just sort of learn to move through the world. Like I don't, there's, I don't take any offense about this. I don't view any of that as as derogatory or or feel less than because of this. But I've just accepted this is a good way for me to move through the world. This is a this is a thing I can do, and I'm not bothering anybody. I'm not taking up space or in somebody's way. Like nobody's ever asked me to move in a movie theater right. <laughs> because I was in their way. Yeah. That's just not part of our existence, and that's fine. But it's also something, maybe a better way to say it's it's not so much that it determines my character, but it's that it just is, right? It's just a fact about the world that I've internalized at this point. And it's fine. 
But now that you describe it, I think, hey, if somebody were trying to write the fictional version of me, that would be a good detail somewhere in there. And I love that that is – in the case of your mother in this book too, it, like the stubbornness definitely comes through in a great way. Like she – it's funny because I it's so much through so much of the book was picturing her as older. I mean, a fair number of the memories you describe in the book, she is older. But like I've known that person a little bit, like a, li a little bit of sort of, yeah, I'm old, but don't you dare underestimate me. I can do this. Like that sounds like it was your mother to a T and make, made me more think even more. God, I wish I'd met this person. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was she was quite astonishing. And yes, then, you know, would not was not polite to people if they underestimated her. I mean, she was, she was cheerful. My, one of my kids just said this the other day and I thought, yeah, that's true. That my mother never had a bad day. She was never not in good form. It's a term my, my husband's family used. Oh, so-and-so was in good form. They're English. Um, and my mother was just all, you know, she just was always in a good mood. She was always, um, you know, she wasn't, she wasn't a Pollyanna or, she, but she was, she wasn't, she was an optimist. And if she was mad, she would, she would burn you with her good cheer. That's a great skill to have. I'm not great at that yet. <laughs> uh, I would like to just ask, cause I know you, you teach writing and you write about writing quite a bit too, just in general. Um, I always find it fascinating how uh, people's different writing processes. Um, uh, you know, I don't think there's, I, I often have people ask me, what's, you know, what's your process? How do you write quickly, et cetera? And there's no one good answer at all. So I'm not looking for sage advice from the top of the mountain necessarily, but I'm curious when you write, particularly when you're writing um, a longer work, do you keep set hours? Do you try to write certain amounts every day? Do you wait until the spirit moves you? How, how do the words come out for you? You know, because I, I teach writing and just in the past couple of weeks, I've said this to a bunch of people, no process is wrong that ends in a finished piece of work. And they were all, you know, a little neurologically different and we write differently. I have never been somebody who can have a set practice of writing every single day. I know a lot of writers who say, that's what you have to do. You have to commit. You have to get up and write for a couple of hours every day. And even when I had all the time in the world, when I was young and unencumbered and unemployed, I did not write well that way. And I would waste the entire day until eight o'clock at night. And then I would sort of in a fit of self-loathing, get to my desk and write for a few hours. But I, I had to somehow, I had to plan to have written earlier for that to work. I couldn't just go, oh, eight o'clock right. is when I write. <laughs> I had to avoid it actively for the entire day and wring my hands and become disgusted with myself. And now um, I teach uh, and I really love teaching and my students work means a great deal to me and I don't write well during the semester. So this is the end of my semester and I have a few things today and a few things tomorrow. And then Monday, I shut myself in the same office that I'm, I'm in right now and I, I rearranged my furniture so it's clearly inhospitable for guests. I <laughs> I wore slippers during the day, even in the hallways of my um, campus building, and I write for really long hours. And I'm already thinking about what I'm going to write, and I do think about what I'm 
about my next projects during the semester, but it is almost like I've had a bottle of soda pop I've been shaking for the entire semester and then it's gonna it's ready to you know I'm not sure gush is a word I want to associate with my work but you know <laughs> there's a certain velocity that happens for me by knowing oh this is your time to teach your time to write is coming up and uh and sort of honoring uh, honoring is a terrible word I'm to, to use a word discussing oneself but like that's how right, it right. <laughs> um it, it's i actually feel like we are a little bit similar in that regard particularly in terms of the i should have written this today i meant to write this today and then kind of doesn't matter what time it is if i've reached a point where i should have done then i start almost angry writing i'm only angry at myself i'm never angry at my editors or anybody right this is my own fault i should have done this and sometimes that works great sometimes the words just fly out regardless of the length of the finished piece i also have those days i'm assuming you do too where then the anger sort of it gets in your own way or the guilt or whatever the emotion is that you'd like to attach to it where i can get in a little bit on my own head and um my editors hopefully don't listen to this podcast, but sometimes a little uh, a little liquid refreshment, shall we say, will will help get me over that. But I do find it is it, it is actually a bit reassuring to hear that, too, that I, I figured I wasn't the only one. But somebody who's writing, I esteem also saying that. Yeah, it's, yeah I should have written this 10 o'clock this morning. I screwed around and did something else. I was on the phone, played a board game online, something something that was not work. Now I need to work because I'm mad at myself. Yeah. Yep. I, I I have to say, though, that I, during my writing time, this is my phone. It's a flip phone that I'm showing you. I have to turn off all the internet. I love the internet. And I, I really have to, like, become a weird hermit in a cave in order to write. And then I can't, like, hear the burble of anybody else's opinion about it um yeah that i i need to because otherwise once i start hearing other people's opinions about what i'm doing when i'm when i'm drafting i care i care very much later on um then i'm sunk and i really i I, as i say this i realize how extreme the division between my teaching life and my writing life even though i think they have a lot to do with each other um just my general behavior and demeanor that i'm I'm quite nice as a teacher and I'm quite open to the opinions of other people. And then I always say to my students that the iron gates are going down um, over my office uh, door. Um, uh, this is the only baseball thing I'll say to you, Keith, because I grew up in Boston going to, I went to Fenway Park as a kid and I lived in that neighborhood. And I always picture it as the roll down iron gates of the shops all around Fenway Park. Um, that's my, fr- my my office. The 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 rolling gate comes down. Nobody's allowed to knock on the door, um, and I just and I just write. And there's nobody in my building. My my colleagues are not in in my building during the summer when I'm here. And I'm very feral and terrible and wild eyed. It's amazing I don't come like in pajamas and a and a smoking jacket and prowl the halls that way. <laughs> 
My guest today has been Elizabeth McCracken. She's the author of the book from last year, The Hero of This Book, as well as 2018's Bowl Away. She also has a free Substack newsletter, elizabethmccracken.substack.com. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining me. Oh my gosh, Keith, it's been like a total joy. Not even like a total joy, an actual total joy. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. The sentiment is entirely mutual. That's all for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy, uh, if you haven't or not already subscribed to this, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, directly through The Athletic. If you do happen to subscribe on iTunes and you're enjoying what you're listening to, please feel free to leave a review. I uh, have seen all the reviews that are there and uh, really appreciate uh, all of your feedback and especially the positive ones. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe, everyone. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.